My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Will George. The fight against the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline Expansion Project has been one of the most visible social struggles in Canada in recent years. Here's a brief timeline. There has been a pipeline running from near Edmonton, Alberta to Burnaby, B.C. since 1953. The expansion project, originally proposed by then-owner Kinder Morgan in 2012, would build a new pipeline along roughly the same path, almost tripling the amount of diluted bitumen carried by Trans Mountain and leading to a seven-fold increase in tanker traffic to the terminal on the B.C. coast. The National Energy Board and the federal Liberals under Justin Trudeau approved the expansion in May 2016. After it became clear that Kinder Morgan was considering scrapping the project, the Trudeau government spent billions of dollars to buy it in 2018. Later that year, the Federal Court of Appeal overturned the approval of the pipeline, citing flaws in the review. A second National Energy Board review ensued, followed by another approval. Critics have argued that the second review was as flawed as the first, But while there have been multiple court challenges to this second approval, so far none have been successful and construction is underway. Even from that bare-bones look at the official process, you get hints about the strength of the opposition to the project. Opposition that knocked the initial plans completely off course and that isn't done yet. A whole host of opponents have been devoted in varying combinations to defending indigenous rights, protecting the lands and waters along the route and on the coast, and opposing new fossil fuel infrastructure that would lock us into ever more disastrous impacts from the climate crisis. As is true in so many similar struggles across North America, indigenous opposition has been central. A number of First Nations in British Columbia, including the Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish nations on the coast, and a number of nations in the interior, led the legal battle with support from environmental groups. And on the land along the route, grassroots opposition is being spearheaded by formations like the Tiny House Warriors in Sohetmuk territory. As well, there's been significant activism and organizing against the pipeline by both indigenous and non-indigenous people in BC's Lower Mainland. An early high point involved civil disobedience and more than 100 arrests on Burnaby Mountain in 2014. Residents of Burnaby itself have been active in response to the threat posed by the expanded tank farm proposed for the terminal. Various municipal governments along the route opposed the project, and after the NDP Green Coalition took power there in 2017, so did the BC provincial government or at least they did for a while. Will George is a member of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation. Not, he emphasizes, a leader or someone able to represent his nation, but a grassroots member. He didn't much like the sound of it when he first heard about the pipeline expansion project, and there were members of his family who were more directly involved in the issue early on, but he didn't get involved himself. I'm not a political person or a battler in that way, he said. But a few years ago, with the formal leadership of his nation occupied with the court proceedings, George's elders asked him to step up and get involved in the grassroots opposition. In March 2018, after six months of preparation and in conjunction with a march involving thousands of people, he and others erected a cedar watch house in Burnaby's Forest Grove Park in the path of the pipeline. 
George himself is the guardian of what is meant to serve as a space of gathering, of ceremony, and of opposition. As well, on a number of occasions when Justin Trudeau has made public appearances in BC, George has voiced his opposition directly to him. And with his years of experience as a window washer on high-rise buildings, George was central to an aerial blockade of the Burrard Inlet in which he and others hung from a bridge for more than 36 hours and blocked tanker traffic. Today, despite the COVID-19 pandemic, construction of the pipeline has not slowed. But the watchhouse still stands, and opponents remain determined to find new ways to resist in the new circumstances. I speak with George about the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline Expansion Project and about his ongoing grassroots work to oppose it. My name is William George from the Slaywatus Nation, and my ancestral name is Swayson. Just a few short years ago, there was a photo shoot directed towards Kingdom Morgan, and uh, I have my five year old son. Since he was about 10 months old, I would take him crab fishing right immediately across the inlet of the Bard Inlet where I would show my son the crab fish, but also where the marine terminal is being built and where the expansion is proposed to go to. So a number of years ago, my elders asked me to step up to do this kind of work. And with all respects of our nation, handling it in the justice system, in the court system, it's just something we felt that we needed to do a little bit more. So again, my elders asked me to do this work. That's how I got started. This pipeline's going to end in the Burke Inlet, immediately right down downtown Vancouver. It's where my nation is located, is right across the inlet. Our people were never relocated from the exact land. We still find artifacts on our beaches. So the importance of standing up and protecting this is it's in our blood to protect that water, which sustained us. 90% of our diet came from that body of water. So that's what drives us and makes sure that we're stewards of this land. We go by our spiritual laws and we'll continue to do that. And then what I try to encourage people and try to create more awareness of is, you know, uh, a large percentage of Canadians were asked, is this in the national interest for this expansion? And a lot of them said yes, large majority, but when they're asked the same question twice, is it okay to spend over $12.6 billion on it? They didn't agree to it. I like to keep it simple. They were over... 700% increase of tanker traffic coming through these bodies of water. And that's the awareness I try to encourage. This is the threat that's coming this way. It's just too much involved. You know, human error happens, mechanical failure happens. And the size of these vessels that are coming through, it's just far too dangerous around these making navigational turns through the Johnson Straits or, or even coming into the harbor is a huge threat to the environment here. Spell out a little more explicitly for listeners the potential impacts of the pipeline expansion that you're concerned about. I'm not a political or numbers guy at all. So again, the 700% increase in tanker traffic, we have resident orca whales here that are threatened. The salmon population will be threatened. And with bitumen, it doesn't float. So recovering it, if there is to be a spill of any sort, it sinks to the bottom. So that's a huge concern. You know, it cannot be recovered. And just the tanker traffic noise alone threatens, again, the resident orca whales and our salmon population. That's how Vancouver came to be, pretty much, is the resource extraction of the salmon years ago. People forget that, so we need to protect that salmon species for the orcas. That's kind of what, again, what drives me and the awareness I try to create to people. What do you remember about first hearing about this proposal to expand the pipeline and the terminal and so on? My initial thoughts were, Immediately, you know, just the big corporations that can simply just go ahead and, and push construction through that a lot of people don't agree with that threatens our indigenous laws. So that's kind of what made me aware of it. 
just wanting to protect our way of life over here. Did Kinder Morgan make any efforts to get the consent of your nation? Early on, like I have other family members that have been on this for 11, 12 years, and I've been on it circling for two years. But Kinder Morgan, no, they would sit down with our elders or speak with them or, or listen to our concerns. You know, we have a 1,200-page assessment document showing where we used to hunt, where we used to gather, and it was never recognized from Kinder Morgan at that time, no. And after you were called to get involved, what were the first things that you did? When I got called in to do this, I was simply pulled out of the weeds. Again, I'm not a political person or a battler that way, but initially what we did is we wanted to put our message in the hands of the investors. And ultimately, that's how we did stop Kinder Morgan, is putting our message in the hands of the investors. The first month we launched the watch house, we watched their stocks plummet by 60%. And ultimately, they saw it as a poor investment, so they backed out. But unfortunately, we all know the government picked up that tab and bailed them out. But then that is what we continue to do today. All we can do is create more awareness of the wrongdoings that are happening right now with this expansion. So the Watch House, this building that you build in your nation's territory in the path of the pipeline, where did the idea come from? The idea came from one of our late members, Leonard George. He passed away a few years ago, but this was his vision, his hopes and dreams that we're still continuing to live out. So it came from our elders, our people, so how to reclaim a little bit of that spot area in our traditional territory to carry on doing the work that we have to do. We had a brilliant, beautiful team about six months leading up to the watch house. We are preparing for that because there was a lot to do in to launching that watch house. So that is the very first step that we took on doing our protesting or blockading. Is, yeah, is the watch house is our launch point. Where is the watch house situated? It's immediately outside um, on Burnby Mountain. There's a holding tank farm there. That's where we decided to put it so we can you know, block the gates. It's still there. In Burnby Mountain there, it's located right immediately to the elementary school. And they're proposing to put 14 new holding tanks there. And even the fire department chief of the fire, a lot of people in the city of Burnaby disagree with it. There's no evacuation plan for their Simon Racer University. You know, it's just the amount of oil they want to store there. They're completely ignoring the safety factors in this. So, And you mentioned there being a lot of work involved in the six months leading up to when you built the watch house. What kinds of things did you need to be doing in that time? A lot of video messaging, a lot of media, and building up to that certain date, March 10th. So a lot of media work, press conferences, you know, just trying to create that excitement to the movement. So six months of a lot of organizing, we had a lot of a lot of hereditary chiefs across Turtle Island coming, so there's a lot involved with trying to get those, like it was close to 10,000 people we had that day. And what was the media coverage in the lead-up like? It was not hostile, I don't think, at first. It's very tricky talking to the media. There was a lot of support because a lot of people in Vancouver do care of what's happening, but especially in the Indigenous communities, you know, a lot of our people think we, we don't have a voice. So, you know, if the government approves a pipeline, a large majority of the people are going to say, well, there's nothing we can do now. So, again, launching this watch list at that time was to say, yes, we do have a voice. There is something we can do. Within your nation in particular, what were the conversations about this issue like? What different points of view did people bring forward? I could only speak for myself. but did have a large support from my elders and, you know, in great respects to my chief and council. 
there was a lot of concerns because they have written agreements in court that you know we're not to protest in any way. But me as a member and not representing my nation as a whole, I can do these sort of things. So with you know the way the chief and council has been set up for how many years now is proven difficult to do certain things like this at times. I felt like, but it's getting a little lesser and a little easier. But still, there is a large fear of the protesting and some of the activities that I choose to do within our chief and council. They just want to make sure things are done safely and nobody gets hurt and nonviolent protesting. And in that lead-up period before you built the Watch House, what other groups and people were you working with in the broader Vancouver area? There's a number of organizations that would help out. You know, sit in the meetings and help with some decision making. But essentially, I took charge on this and found support where it was needed. And then now, more so, a lot of grassroots are coming out and wanting to do things. And this weird times that we're living in right now, it's proven to be really difficult to do much of anything. You know, we can't gather, we can't blockade no more. So, you know, there's some new fears that have arised with how the world is turning right now. Tell me about the day itself, with the big gathering and so on, when you put the watch house up. Well, we got there early in the morning. We had a beautiful team of volunteers that erected this longhouse structure. It's just a lot, a lot of lovely people come, a lot of different organizations, a lot of good speakers, you know, carrying the message of what we needed to do. So that day was just like any other large gathering or, you know, movement. For folks who maybe haven't seen pictures of the building, describe a bit more about what it looks like and about what went into building it. So it's a longhouse-looking structure. From what I understand, it's built out of one cedar tree. It's all cedar fire-treated wood, and it's got to be 25 by 20 foot. It's very appealing to the eyes. It's a very nice-looking longhouse structure, miniature-looking, like a nice woodshed, I guess, if that paints a picture for some people. It went up, I think it took about 16 hours in total maybe close to a dozen actual people working on it. And I know the house is still there. Are folks living in it? There's a good group of volunteers that take shifts staying there some nights. It's not occupied, but for the most part, there are still volunteers that stay there, yes. Talk more about the goal of the Watch House, of having that structure there, having people in it, in that specific place. It's a campsite. It's a resistance camp. So that alone, it's just a, it's a resistance camp to continue holding that space. I know that we'll still be here, and whatever happens, if it gets pushed through, which it looks like it will be pushed through, they haven't stopped construction. If anything, they've increased construction there. So that's why that watch house will still remain there. I mean, there's a backup of oil now, so these 14 new holding tanks will be put together here if we can't do something. We have to adapt to figure out how to continue delaying construction to buy us some time. It's going to be a perfect storm for them. I mean, there's 16 to 18 crew buses going in and out every day, every shift. So they're not self-isolating. They're not scaling back any construction. Again, it's like a perfect storm for them to do this. So that watch house needs to remain there. Again, we have to adapt and figure out how we can come together as people power to continue creating awareness of the events that are falling up there. The construction is increasing up there. When every other workforce in BC or across Canada is scaling back, but for some reason they can continue ramping up construction while we can't gather, we can't stop them right now. It's frustrating and it's heartbreaking to see what's going on. Everybody else is doing their part to social distance except them. So just trying to find ways to delay construction and buy some time. 
What other kinds of actions have you taken over the last couple of years in opposition to the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline Expansion Project? Well, I think it's about six or eight times I've gone into luncheons or wherever Trudeau is going to be. That's one part I do enjoy is going in there and showing that voice, that Indigenous voice in these groups. It inspires people and lets them know that we still can stand up to our elected leaders that are continuing to do things that are unsafe for our communities, that are unsafe for the environment. I mean, climate leaders, they don't build pipelines. You know, Trudeau, years ago, signed off to be a climate leader, and he's not doing that. So going in those rooms, that's something that I've done a number of times to go in there and to address him and them know that we'll do whatever it takes to stop it in a peaceful way. So that is one thing that I've done. Where these tankers come through, we have a series of two bridges. One's the first Narrows and one's the second Narrows Bridge. A good, great team of us, members from Greenpeace. There's about seven of us in total. We repelled off a bridge and we stopped an oil tanker from leaving for two days. So we repelled on ropes. We had banners for aesthetics. And I think it was about 46 or 48 hours. We hung there and we held that spot and didn't let a tanker leave. So those are some of the actions, larger actions that I've taken. When you've done these actions where you've gone into events where Trudeau is speaking and you've spoken up in opposition to Trans Mountain, what kinds of responses have you gotten from Trudeau and from, you know, the other elite people in suits who tend to be in those kinds of rooms? There was one in Kamloops and it was at a university there. There was about a thousand liberal supporters. We waited outside in the cold for about two hours to get in. And this is the very first time I've done this. We get access into the gym and then immediately when I doing a coat check, CSIS comes up to me and they said, Mr. George, are we going to have any problems today? So instead of getting, because it is a terrifying, you know, it's nerve wracking to be there. So instead I said, I don't know, we'll see. So I continue to sit in the gym, waiting for him to come out. CSIS comes in the, we had a circle style seating area with again, about 800, 1,000 people. And the CSIS comes and they turn their chair around and look directly at me. And you know, again, not to be discouraged or threatened or scared. I said, you better be the toughest one they sent over. So just trying to build myself up because I have to address them in front of people and it's nerve wracking, but it's necessary to do that. And then immediately after that, you can start seeing on social media that other people are doing similar things. So a small part of me hopes that what I did there that day encourages people to stand up and have a voice and voice their opinions and be strong about it too. And in the face of doing something like that, that is, as you say, a really intimidating thing to do, how do you work up the courage to speak when you know that everyone around you is wanting you to be silent? You know, lots of things go running through my mind. You know, my son, my people, just kind of knowing that I'm honoring my ancestors by doing this is one thing that encourages me. So small things like that, I think of, that give me the strength and the courage to go to do something like that. It is absolutely terrifying. My hands are sweating just talking about that and remembering being in that position. But again, honoring my ancestors and my son. And then I don't only do this for my people. I do this for your people, too. I do this for Trudeau's family, knowing that I'm doing this for his children, too. I'm not mad at the guy at all. I'm not angry with him. Those are some things that thrive me. And I like being a, a mean person sometimes, direct or aggressive when it comes to protecting my family or my lands and waters. So you got to be aggressive sometimes. Where did the idea for the aerial blockade come from? That was a collective idea for 20 years now. I've cleaned windows on high-rises downtown, so I've repelled. I've been on ropes. You know, I've been hundreds of feet in the air. It's natural for me. It's something I like. 
So when uh, Greenpeace heard about that, we decided this would be a good movement, a good thing to do. So for months leading up to it, they worked really hard on it. Lots of equipment, lots of people involved. I didn't tell any of my family members. And I didn't tell my elders, didn't tell nobody what was going on. I wanted to keep it a good secret, have that impact. So there was a lot involved with that. It wasn't an easy task at all. What kinds of things did you need to figure out and do in order to carry out that kind of action? Well, a lot of training for the other folks that were participating in the repelling aspect of it. And now we did have another five people in the undercarriage of that to keep us safe or if we needed any assistance at all. So there was a couple of weeks of training. A lot of gear had to be in service for this. Thousands of pieces and thousands of feet of rope had to be wrangled up. We had to have plans put together. It was not an easy task. So the team that worked on this did a really good job. And I understand that one of the big pennants that was used in the action had your artwork on it? Yeah, one of the 40-foot banners did have a logo that we used to represent the campsite we have on Burnaby Mountain. It's a fist, and then it has some watermarks on it. It's just a symbol I wanted everybody to associate with that watch. So, yeah, one of the banners did have my artwork on it, yes. Uh, Regular listeners may remember that back in March, Talking Radical Radio did an interview with Sharon Fortney, curator of Indigenous collections and engagement at the Museum of Vancouver. We talked about their Acts of Resistance exhibit, which features the banners used in the aerial blockade action that George has been discussing. We focus not only on this art and the indigenous artists who created it, but also broader questions of the history of colonialism and museums, as well as the ways in which indigenous communities and movements are relating to museum spaces today. You can search for that episode online. What was it like hanging up in the air for that long? For me, it's my comfort zone. You know, a lot of people turn their computers on at work in the morning. For years, I've thrown ropes over a building and hung off, but I never hung for 48 hours. But I treated it as a ceremony, you know, as hanging in the elements above that same body of water that we were protecting. So I treated it like a ceremony. And I was able to do lots of meditation up there, lots of praying. So, you know, I enjoyed it for sure. And for the aerial blockade or for the various times you've spoken up during Trudeau's events, have you ever faced legal consequences? No, I haven't. I haven't been arrested blockading. I don't know the exact number of people we had arrested on Burnley Mountain. It's over 250 people that were arrested. I was arrested with a team from the aerial blockade. They dropped the charges not too long after. They didn't want to press charges on us. And then even when I go in to disrupt Trudeau, you know, ceases. They don't put arms on me or take me out of there. They ask me to leave. I, I leave, but no arrests or anything doing these actions. And through all the things that you've done, what opportunity has there been to work with folks from other Indigenous nations along the pipeline route who also oppose it? There's always efforts to communicate with those nations to see what we can do together. But, you know, I'm just trying to settle this end of the battle, so trying to caretake for where the pipeline ends and the construction that's happening down here. When things get back to somewhat normal, we'll have to be reaching out to those nations and see what we can do. Now, they want to develop in Kamloops, which is further up from me in the lower mainland here. They want to start in June laying pipe in BC, from what I heard. So we have a very small, narrow window here to try to delay to buy some time until things turn back to normal and we can gather, we can meet with each other, we can sit at the same table. You know, having this worldwide pandemic here is proven difficult to see what we can do. And a lot of our communities right now are just trying to keep their families safe. So difficult times, weird times we live in. 
What construction is actually happening now? Um, not too aware of anything outside of here, but here, again, the 14 new holding tanks, they've been building there. They put up a double fencing, like a military-grade fencing area on the marine side of it, on the other side where it's going to actually end and then go into the tankers. They had a permit for a floating fence on the water there, but then have a permit for a military-grade razor wire fence. Like this fence could take a hit from a ship. It's a pretty big fence, but that's where they're going to start drilling into the mountain. A few years ago, Greenpeace mounted this drill bit that came from Germany, and they put a tracking device on it. But since then, the batteries died. We can't locate this tracker. So that's a huge concern. We can't see when they move this. We don't know where it is. They can move it at nighttime. They could already be doing it right now. We don't know. So there's the marine side where they're pile driving in structures to accept these new tankers coming in and increase that. And then there's further down the road on the marine side, they bought out an old concrete plant. So it's already a big facility. This is where I have reports of 16 to 18 different buses going out each shift. So they're working around the clock. You know, if you get 16, 18 buses, they're not self-isolating. They're not doing their part. So there's a big, huge concern right now of the amount of construction that is happening. What have you and the people that you work with been able to do to keep opposition to Trans Mountain going during the pandemic? Yeah, just trying to figure that out in some group chats here, like-minded people, people I've worked with, trying to find a way we can adapt to doing this. Like, how can we do our, our blockades? How can we do the things we've done in the past without putting people at risk by gathering them and asking them to come stand there and blockade with us? You know, it's irresponsible for us to ask people to come gather at this time. So there has to be a way, and we're, we're trying to figure out what we can do to help stop this, create more awareness. Again, it's like a perfect storm for them to come in here and develop this while we can't do nothing about it. So yeah, I couldn't speak on exactly what we're going to do, but I do have a few pokers in the fire of, you know, things I can do. There's social media, and, you know, if it comes down to it, it'll be just me there stopping these trucks, stopping these buses and these vehicles from going in. If that's how it has to be, it'll just be me. We're working on it, what we can do during this time. And for listeners who are in other parts of the country, who are also cooped up at home and not able to gather and all of that, do you have any suggestions for how we could act in support? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Protecttheinlet.ca is where you can go and donate. Monies are needed for this movement. Again, we're fighting billions of dollars and we have no funds. So donations are always appreciated. So again, that's at protecttheinlet.ca. Click the donate button. I'll be creating some video messaging. I got some beautiful people that you know, will help me make some digital images, some video. And so just passing those videos along and keeping everybody informed. Donations are, are really needed right now, for sure. That's one way people can help us. You have been listening to my interview with Will George, a grassroots member of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation who's been active in opposing the Trans Mountain Tar Sands Pipeline Expansion Project. To learn more about some of that work, go to protecttheinlet.ca and click on the Watch House. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 